You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the North Canton Chapel. And over the past few weeks, we've been unpacking what Jesus said. We've been looking at God's word and the gospels to see what Jesus said. And these are these words of truth that hold true for you and for me. And if you've missed it, you can go back and watch or listen online the past six weeks. But as we look to each of these, the heart behind this, if you were here in week one, Pastor Brandon kind of set the heart behind the series that we want to see Jesus clearly. We want to see clearly what it means to follow him and to see clearly what a healthy expression of church looks like and to remind us, no matter who we are, that we still deeply need Jesus. Now, a few months ago, I got new, these new glasses if you know me, you know that that's a really big deal, and after today, all of you are going to know this about me. Um, see, I have this really crazy eye phobia. I've had it since I was a little child, um, and I'm going to regret sharing already. I get enough jokes in the office where they say, hey, Brummy, watch, and try to touch their eyes to see if they'll make me pass out. So... <sighs> It wasn't that my old pair didn't work, right? They did work, and I delayed for a long, long time getting a new pair. See, when I go into the eye doctor, it's not even like, we don't even talk about doing the like air and the eye test. I don't know what it is. Don't tell me about it. But just like sitting in that chair this past time was probably the worst. I was sitting there. I became clammy. Literally, the chair was like soaked and drenched in sweat that had leaked through my shirt. Okay, and so it's so embarrassing, I'm sitting there, and even worse, it wasn't just some random doctor, but it was someone that I used to know, and so the shame is piling on pretty deep at this point. And see, it was easy for me to pull out reasons why I didn't need to get my eyes checked. I could see enough to drive, right? My other glasses were only a little loose, but hey, I have three kids, I've taken a pillow to a face, I've been at the bottom of the dog pile, Glasses are expensive, says the guy who pays monthly for vision insurance. I was good where I was, right? But see, I didn't even realize that going through all of that, there was a step to help me see clear. And it would have been so easy to settle for where I was. I didn't really need to change. I was good with the glasses I had. And I think that's sometimes how we can be, especially when we've been in the church, if you've been in the church for so long, that we've missed what happens when we lay down our shame, when we're honest with our struggle. Seriously, I don't think you guys understand how much eyes always freak me out and always will. But see, what's on the other side of that is so beautiful. And so today, as we press into these words of Jesus, I just encourage you to let our ears perk not to what we want to know, but what Jesus wants us to hear. 
You see, Jesus, as we read last week, as Pastor Brandon shared, he had stood in the temple courts of Jerusalem with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the crowds, and he pronounced these seven woes. And so right after this, Jesus and his disciples, they moved ahead outside the city. And so as they're going, the disciples are thinking on these last things that Jesus said. He talked about the destruction of the temple and his second coming. And so the disciples, as they come and they pause on the Mount of Olives, they ask Jesus these two questions. They say, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And so these questions are at the beginning of Matthew 24, set the dialogue that's going to end Jesus' dialogue with his disciples, where we're going to hone in today in Matthew 25. But to help us understand this context, see Jesus responds to these questions. I think these are questions that have probably piqued our ears. If you've grown up in the church in these settings or even in these, these weeks, these months, these years we've been in where things seem crazy and you say, is this it? What's the end going to look like? Jesus, his disciples asked that and Jesus responded. And Jesus says a lot of things. He talks about there's going to be wars and rumors and wars, natural disasters, and Jesus says, but this isn't the end. He says his followers are going to be delivered up to tribulation, put to death, being hated by all nations for Jesus' name's sake. And Jesus says, but this is just the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus says that many will fall away, that they'll betray one another, that they'll hate one another. Followers of Jesus. He says many false prophets will arise proclaiming a message that doesn't place salvation in Christ and Christ alone. And then Jesus says this in verse 12. 13 and 14 of Matthew 24. He says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus, in all of this, says there's going to be a lot of things, but, but look at his emphasis is on this, this posture that in the midst of this, he warns that the love of many will grow cold. And he says that this end, it's intrinsically tied to his command. His disciples don't know yet, but we know in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, to go and make disciples of all nations. As we read and listen to Jesus' words this morning, let our ears perk not to what we want to know, but what Jesus wants us to hear. This doesn't mean we can't do studies on end times, but where does Jesus place the emphasis? Is it on pinpointing the exact moment of every season, exact sorrow timing, or on posturing our hearts rightly in response to his kingdom and in preparation for his return? Proverbs 20 verse 10 says, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And so today as we jump in a moment into the final judgment in Matthew 25, we're Right before, Jesus himself says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So let us hold our hearts and our minds this morning and ask, are we fervent about that which Jesus is clear to be fervent? And are we resting in the hands of a God who can be trusted with the seasons and timings that we cannot precisely know? Are we willing to let him examine us, not settling for where we are? but going through the hard, painful reality of saying, Jesus, show me what you want me to hear, not what I want to know. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Jesus, as we hold your word in our hands today, would you speak to us? Reveal the parts of our minds, our hearts, our souls 
that are out of line with you. Jesus, we rebuke in your mighty name the schemes of Satan that want to seek to divide us as a church, as a people. Jesus, you are defender. Would you defend us? Jesus, you are protector. Would you protect us? May we be faithful to proclaim your kingdom to the nations. May we be willing to step into the spaces and places that you, Lord, have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Speak to us, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Matthew 25 here. This is the end. This is the last of Jesus' dialogue here. It's this final judgment. We're going to read it together, and then we're going to unpack it. So if you would, read with me. Matthew 25. We're beginning in verse 31. You can follow along in your Bibles, on the screens, at home. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on, his, on the left. Then the king, Jesus, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on those left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What do we see here? It starts, says the Son of Man, right? Jesus, if you were here a few weeks ago, Pastor Micah talked about Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, this title, Son of Man. This is Jesus coming, sitting on the throne. He is the judge. He is the ruler. He is the one who will reign who is before him? We see that all nations are gathered. It says he gathers all nations, but it's important as we look at this. Look, it says he gathers the nations, but he separates the peoples. See, the nations are gathered, Jews and Gentiles, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, but they are not separated by the nation which they were gathered there as. They were separated by individual person. Your national affiliation does not hold weight to your eternal salvation. They are separated as individual people. And so what is this separation? Let's look at this. It says the sheep, right? These are those who are separated on his right. The right was uh, a position of honor, a place of honor. It says that these are those who are going to inherit the kingdom. And then the goats. These are the ones who are separated on his left. It says these are those condemned to the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so you look at this. And it's interesting, is that as I sat with this, there's this reality. Church, the sheep and the goats shared the same field. They grazed on the same grass. They drank from the same troughs and streams. 
So how are their differences marked? We're going to see here first the reason that Jesus gives for the place that they are set in, followed by the response of the sheep and the goats. But spoiler alert, both the sheep and the goats were shocked at the reason Jesus gave them for the place they sat at. I'm going to read again verses 35 and 36, and we're going to contrast that. Jesus' response to the sheep with that of the goats in 42, 43. Jesus speaking to the sheep says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The goats, verse 42, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. See, with both of these, there's this truth that they're outward life, the fruit, was an overflow of their inner hope, what was rooted in them. What came out of them, the fruit that they displayed, was an overflow of what was rooted deep within them. The fruit of what you do, think, and say in every moment of every day is directly connected to the root of who you are becoming within. You may not fully be that person, but the fruit of what you do, think, and say in every moment of every day is directly connected to the root of who you are becoming within. Church, if we were walking in an orchard, an apple orchard, we would not be shocked that an apple tree bears apples. If you plant an apple tree, you expect apples. A tree is known by its fruit. And yet there is the reality that there is a very real enemy that opposes Jesus and his church and his followers and seeks to deceive and destroy the works of Jesus, the works of his people, the works of his church. And the veil, in some ways, has been pulled over our eyes. At times, we've confused the marking of fruit in the lives of those who follow Jesus. What fruit does someone whose life is marked by Jesus, thus being marked by the Spirit, bear? We're going to address this question in a moment after we address the surprise, the shock, that both the sheep and the goat respond to Jesus with. See, the sheep is surprised at what Jesus said because they were just naturally living by the Spirit. Their love and care for others wasn't a to-do list because they thought that Jesus was watching. The sheep were so overwhelmed by the depths to which Jesus loved them, forgave them, and was changing them. That this inner hope expressed itself out in everything they did to everyone they encountered in every place they went. But when you look at the goats... The goat is surprised because if they knew there was more that they were supposed to do or that Jesus expected them to do, they would have colored in those lines too. And church, my beloved brothers and sisters, hear me. If the only time we engage, the only time we engage lovingly with non-believers or those outside of your current state of perceived sanctification is marked by registering for an event or raising money for a missions trip or a to-do checklist that isn't deep relational, we're probably going to be shocked when we stand before Jesus. The mission that Jesus entrusted to those who are part of his kingdom is not an event. And it doesn't draw lines. Nations and politics and religious denominations draw lines, and 
hear me out on this in case you would accuse me of saying this. This is not licensed to sin. This is not licensed to believe whatever, but a warning that we're too often slaves to fear instead of free to love. We're so enslaved to the fear of getting something wrong that we have let Satan chain our love rather than letting the Holy Spirit lead us to sit out messy tables and to work out hard conversations, no matter how hard it takes. Jesus, there's these other gospel narratives in Mark and Luke where Jesus has this same conversation. Listen to what Jesus says here in that same conversation from Matthew 24 and Mark 13, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Why? Listen to the posture to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, what are we to do? Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Listen to Jesus, Luke 21, verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth. I will give you wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And like, can you imagine this? Jesus himself is saying, when you're in the midst of this persecution, welcome it. It's an opportunity. Why? Your posture is to proclaim the message that I've come and given to you. And don't think about what you're going to say. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you words. And I look at this, and then it scares me. In a world where we feel the pressure to have my stances so figured out, to write articulate responses, to vet every theological discourse, Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't think about how to answer. Do you trust me? How deep is your faith rooted? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is enough that in those moments... You don't have to have something prepared because the Spirit of God is living in you and He will speak. But I look at this and I wonder how often I don't trust Jesus and I over-prepare. I delete those I don't like. I clean my bookshelf. I remove friends. I move church buildings. I leave small groups. And in those moments when I'm pressed, what comes out of me has less to do with the outside things and more reveals the root that's in my heart. If I am pressed and anger comes out because I've typed up a response to every little truth that isn't the truth that Jesus has by his graciousness given me. The bigger question isn't what pass do I get to say the truth that I deserve to say. And instead is any of the truth that I am saying marked by the Holy Spirit. And what marks something as being of the Holy Spirit? The sheep and the goats, they shared the same field. They grazed on the same grass. They drank from the same troughs and streams. They worshipped in the same buildings. They sat in the same small groups. They lived in the same neighborhoods. They did a lot of things, seemingly good things, but what marks what we do or say or think of holding value and worth in the kingdom of Jesus? See, there's this reality, Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us that each and every one of us were dead, all of us in our trespasses and sins, no matter who, what, where, when, but God. 
because he is rich in mercy, because his love is great, even when and while we were still dead and still sinning and still not thinking rightly, saved us by grace. We did not earn it. We didn't read the right theology textbook. We didn't go to the right church. We didn't live in the right time. Hear me. These things aren't bad, but they're not the limits to how God moves and who God saves. Paul was an enemy of the church. He was dragging them out, handing them over to prison and to be put to death. And Jesus met him. The church didn't want to believe it. The church didn't want anything to do with Paul when they heard these rumors. But Jesus will do what Jesus can do. And Jesus will use that which Jesus wants to use. And you and I don't dictate the terms of who is saved and when they are saved. By grace, through faith, it's not your own doing. You can't do anything to earn it, not for you, not for your kids, not for your spouse, by grace alone. And when we are saved by grace, it's not just from something. Jesus didn't just save us so that we don't have to get sorted like the goats someday. Jesus saved us for something. Ephesians 2.10 says, right, God prepared these good works beforehand that we, you and I, should walk in them. In John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine. He says God is the vine dresser. He paints this picture of the branches bearing fruit, but only the branches that are attached to the vine. See, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus says this. He says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Greek word that's used here for fruit, I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's this karpon, karpos. It's the same Greek as Jesus speaks here of bearing fruit, the same Greek that is used in Galatians chapter 5, which answers the question we asked earlier, what fruit does someone whose life is marked by the Spirit bear? Jesus in John 15 is saying, real fruit, real works flow from those who are truly rooted in Jesus. Let's look, Galatians 5 verses 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, all of these that are listed, all of these are the fruit. Not just some, not just one, all. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The apple tree doesn't think about the type of fruit it bears. It is an apple tree. It bears apples. It doesn't get to say, I'm not going to bear apples. It cannot help but make apples. They may not start by being the biggest, the ripest, the juiciest, but they begin to take the form over time and maturity of apples if I am professing Jesus as my Lord and Savior, when I listen to his words here, is the posture of my life in line with this? I don't get to look at the fruit of the Spirit and say, that's not me. Jesus is in the business of changing. And what does change for a Christian look like? Right here, the fruit of the Spirit. This is the marker. The sheep were shocked because they couldn't help producing from the overflow of rooted change in their life. The goats were shocked because they drew lines 
and to-do listed their taped fruit, and they couldn't understand how they missed it. So what about us? When you look on your life, church, if we can have a heart-to-heart in these last moments, and in this, not as your pastor, but as a brother in Christ to brothers and sisters, you know, as I sat with this text, as I sat with this morning, as I sat praying for you, for us asking God to speak to me, praying like the psalmist, search me, O God, try me. You know, as your brother, I recognize that a lot of us, we've weathered a lot of storms and seasons together. For a lot of you, you're tired, and I want you to know that I see you, I feel you, that you gather in this place, but you're grieving I want you to know that I see you. I'm grieving alongside you. For some of you, you've drawn back. You've been hurt by the brokenness and pain in your families, in your communities, in your small groups. Friends you love like family who no longer worship alongside you. I see your loss. I know your loss. Pastors you loved who no longer shepherd you here. And don't think that you're alone in fighting the lies of feeling as forsaken and abandoned. But brothers and sisters, we are not alone. We have not been forsaken. We have not been abandoned. Brothers and sisters, hear me. We do not have to curl up. We do not have to draw back. Our love does not need to grow cold. So if I can offer us three warnings and then three hopes in this moment, and wherever you sit, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would do what only you can do. Jesus, I just ask that you would speak to us, to our hearts. Jesus, I ask that you would just soften our hard hearts. Jesus, you would deal with our bitterness, our anger, our pain. Jesus, that you would be glorified. Warning number one is this. You can know Jesus without being known by Jesus. See, the goats knew Jesus, but they weren't known by Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, there's these guys. They're called the sons of Sceva. They're these uh, Jewish exorcists. And so they heard and saw what Paul was doing, um, that he was going through and... um, through and, and healing and, and driving out. And so these sons of Sceva, they sought to call on the name of Jesus to cast demons out of a man. And in the midst of this, the demon answers the sons of Sceva and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? In James chapter 2, it says, even the demons believe and shudder. You can know Jesus without being known by Jesus. So the question, is Jesus your everything? How deep is Jesus rooted in your life? The sons of Sceva used the name of Jesus to gain. The sheep at Jesus' right hand found in the cross, found in an empty tomb, the greatest gain. How could they not overflow without lines or boundaries this great love that knows no depths? 
But the love of Jesus is a one-of-a-kind love. And see, warning number two is this. You can love Jesus without loving as Jesus loves. Did you see that was it? The, the goats had loved people. They had clothed people. They had fed, nursed, cared for. But it was not an echo of the selfless, no-party-lines love that was displayed on the cross. That a holy God looked at wicked, selfish sinners, you and me, and died for them. That Jesus made a way when there was no way. But this way was not that so we could step up and prop ourselves up and say, oh, look, I'm so right in my acting, my thinking, I'm singing the right songs. Jesus made a way when there was no way, not so that we could step up and uh, create these big citadels and vet who gets to sit next to us. Jesus saved us, and it says, you are ministers, partners with me in the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus saved us to mirror this love. See, there's a cost to following Jesus, and each must count their cost. We are all made in the image of God, but the brokenness and sinfulness that we experience looks different. The rich man fought greed. Thus was the cost to follow. What does it cost for you to follow Jesus? What has following Jesus cost you? Because perceived right thinking or right acting or right whatever is always marked with the same type of fruit. God's word tells us Galatians 5. And see, right before that list, it lists sins. And you and I don't get to bullet point which ones are worse. You want to talk about the wickedness of sexual immorality? All right, let's keep going on that list. Ekthrai, it's this Greek word, it means enmity, hostility, hatred of enemies, same list. Eris, it's this Greek word, it means strife, literally defined as quarrel, a readiness to quarrel. Am I always looking for a problem? Am I scanning my social media feeds, waiting for that post that goes against every right way of thinking? And you very well may have, by God's grace, that current right way of thinking. But God's grace is still working in you, and it's still working in that person that we so eagerly want to quarrel with. Jealousy, outbursts of anger, contentions, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, all listed. And we don't get a pass because of how we vote, the way we dress, where we live, the church we attend, the truth we now understand. Jesus came full of grace and truth, and we too must seek that, and we only get it by abiding in him, abiding. It's this present imperative verb, ongoing. It's an all the time, not in our own power, not in our own words, not in our own understanding. The fruit of the Spirit is our plumb line, and we don't get to excuse or give an absent for it. But if we are rooted in him, it will begin to flourish more and more as we grow up in him. And so when I look at this, Jesus' call to his disciples is this call to what's my posture in the midst of whatever season, whatever part of the end I'm in. How am I doing? How are you doing? When you look back on 2020, 2021, you and I don't get a pass on the fruit of the Spirit because we took a stance on perceived big sins. When you and I were pressed, when I was pressed, in trials and suffering, what came out of me? Quarreling? Fits of anger? Divisions? Dissension? Oh Lord, would you forgive me? 
Would you forgive us? Jesus, we have diminished the weight of our own sin and our own selfishness. Warning number three, you can proclaim a kingdom without proclaiming his kingdom. In the kingdom of God, Jesus In the kingdom of God, Jesus delivers us from the power of sin. But see, his kingdom is a kingdom of now, but not yet. We are not yet free of the pull of sin. But I wonder how often we rest in a kingdom and look to a kingdom that places our hope in the not yet, that draws lines according to the not yet. The kingdom of God is a now, not yet. He is freed us from the power of sin, but we are still in this broken world and we have to put to death daily. We have to ask ourselves, do we promise that Jesus equals freedom from rather than Jesus equals sufficiency through? We are free from the power of sin, but not yet free from the pull of sin In Jesus, we are instantly seen righteous. This is justification. But we are being made more and more into his image. This is his sanctification until that day he comes again. But none of us are finished. But this is hard. And the kingdom is messy. So it's easier to not have to point to things in my life that are are really hard. It's easier to not have to point to areas where, where I'm still being tempted. It's easier to not have to recognize that there's this indwelling sin that wants me to pull me away from Jesus. It'd be easier to believe the lie that Jesus equals instant sanctification. Yes, one day I will be made perfect, but today I am still being made new. And because I have Jesus, I have the strength to endure, the strength to persevere, and I am forgiven in the midst of Jesus says this to Paul after Paul begged three times for this thorn in his flesh to be removed completely. He said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If you're looking for a kingdom to be a bunch of spotless lambs, there is only one spotless lamb and his name is Jesus and the spots and blemishes we bear, one day he will wash them away fully. But until then, our hope is not in uniformity in how far we have been sanctified now, but in unity beneath the one who shed his blood and whose sacrifice was enough, is enough. The one who is sufficient when I am not, when you are not, when they are not. The one who will finish the good work that he began in each of us according to his timing. And just because you or I want someone to be a finished, sanctified work in microwave timing, if God has prepared for them to be in the slow cooker, to sit in his truth, to simmer in the flames of his grace, you or I don't get to throw them out. We get the joy of digging deep in relationship, however long it takes for Jesus to do his thing. Our church shouldn't be comfortable Does our insufficiency cause us to worship the all-sufficient one? But see, this means rough edges and messy tables with people who are still in process fighting a very real enemy. And can I warn you? Can I warn you, brothers and sisters? In one of the seasons that God entrusted me to walk through one of the darkest seasons was someone I so deeply love 
as I sat with them in the midst of demonic oppression, and I heard the audible cries that Satan wants us to believe, shouting, Jesus doesn't love you. Can I caution us? If we have looked at those around us and echoed the demon saying, Jesus doesn't love you, instead of mirroring the cross, the cross that says, this is how much Jesus loved you, is let me tell you this, everything rests on Jesus. And there is hope today, hope number one, the good shepherd is still gathering his sheep. There is that day coming where he's going to separate, but he is still doing something. He's still gathering his sheep. Satan wants us to give up on the broken, give up on the sinful, give up on the wicked around us. But the cross reminds us we were once there too. And then Jesus got us out. And Jesus is still calling others to his name. Jesus has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus has entrusted us to be witnesses. In the midst of suffering and persecution, we don't have to be angry because we have the greatest hope. And this hope doesn't change no matter who's in the White House, no matter what neighborhood you live in, no matter what job you have, no matter the amount of money in your bank account, where you live, who sits next to you. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is moving in every crevice to bring light to darkness. Satan wants to tell you to give up. Satan wants to tell you to draw lines of who is worthy to be given the gospel. None of us are worthy but God. Hope number two, no one but Jesus determines your seat at the table. You may sit here, you may be watching online, and you may believe you are too far broken, too far gone. You may believe you cannot gather here, but there is a seat for you, and it was paid by the blood of the Lamb. And no matter your voting party, denominational background, cultural upbringing, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every earthly power, every earthly institution bows to the name of Jesus. Jesus made a way for you, and no one but Jesus gets to decide whether you have a seat at his table. And if I've learned anything in my 13 years here at the North Canton Chapel, it's that God's timing is so much better than our timing. God is faithful, and you and I can be angry at the seasons or the timing, but he is Lord over the seasons, and he is good. And so as I look back on prayers prayed 10 years ago, I had to repent recently because God showed me that I had given up on people. And he gave me but a glimpse of the work that he's been doing this whole time, and I had to repent. And the question for us is if, if, if Jesus takes 40 years in someone's life, am I willing to be obedient to Jesus for 40 years before he shows me the fruit of what he is doing? Or do I wring my hands, gather my angry hens, and move to a new nest instead of running to a faithful God? Because church, don't forget this. Especially in light of this past year, when my knee-jerk, our knee-jerk reaction is to cut ties, to create divides, and to move far away, Jesus is in the ministry of reconciliation. This is what he's about. And if I'm honest... I've had to recognize that Satan has pulled a veil over my eyes this past year because I've been so eager when I look at those around me to type out responses on keyboards, to speak out of bitterness and anger, to slander in my heart and my thoughts, and I've had to repent of my sin. 
Because Jesus has given me the ministry of reconciliation. And instead of getting so angry and divisive and posting, maybe what I should be doing is wearing holes in my carpet and feeling pain in my stomach because I'm praying and fasting to the only one who can do anything about anything. And my prayer for us as I sat here as I said, would the North Kent Chapel be a beacon of reconciliation? Would the world look at the North Kent Chapel and be astounded at those who sit at our tables? Because none of it makes sense apart from Jesus. Because it's not about you and it's not about me. It's not about what you and I get right because without Jesus, we are nothing. Jesus is everything. And so the question for us, there is a day coming. There is a day coming when there will be that judgment, but it's not right this moment. And so for some, you may be saying, what do I do? And for some, it's the question, do you know the good shepherd? Do you know this Jesus, this Jesus? who made a way, who wants to take all the pain that you feel, all the shame that the enemy wants to speak over your life, that wants to take your sin, your brokenness, that he made a way, he paid a way, he is a good father, he loves you. And for others, maybe the question is, do I this morning need to repent? Because my love has grown cold, I have forgotten my first love. I've forgotten the one thing Jesus asked me to do. The one thing that he said hinges on the end, which we're so eager to get to. But have we taken it to the nations? Have we taken it to the corners of our workplaces? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, Jesus, as we look to that day, we recognize that there is a day coming where everyone will stand before your throne. So Jesus, today I ask that you would search us. Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, for the one in here that maybe is feeling this tug, that they say, I, I want to be found by my shepherd, that they would recognize that you're right there, that they would confess, that they would turn to you. And Jesus, for those who are gathered in this space, that we say, Jesus, you are Lord, that you would search us and reveal within us. Lord, where we may have let our love grow cold, that we curled back, that we became anger and bitter. Jesus, would you do a work that only you could do in us? You are the God that is good, that holds us fast in the midst of a world of chaos. Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your mighty and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. 
Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.